0: Well, I'd like to invite your attention to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, this morning. Genesis, chapter 3. This is the fourth week that we are in Genesis 3, and we have seen... On the one hand, uh, the glory of God and his grace towards sinners, even from the beginning, making them male and female in his image and placing them in the Garden of Eden to glorify his name. But even more particular, over the past few weeks, we have seen Satan into the garden, tempting man to rebel against God and to reject his word. And yet, even in Adam and Eve's choice to rebel against the Lord of God, Lord God, desiring to be like God themselves, God comes to the garden. And in God's coming to the garden, he redeems them and reconciles them back to himself. And even as we saw last week, God begins speaking to the transgressors in the fall, beginning with the serpent, and now, as we'll see today, through the woman and to man. But as we saw last week, God. Begins speaking a word of righteous judgment over those who have transgressed his law. And as he pronounces upon Satan humiliation, frustration, and defeat, we saw this word of hope that God would provide a Redeemer through the seed of the woman. And now this morning, as God turns from the great tempter to man and woman to address their iniquity and pronounce the grave consequences of their sin, we see even in the judgment of God, we see his amazing grace toward these fallen rebels. And in God's word to Adam and Eve, we hear a clear explanation regarding the effects of sin in our world and of God's marvelous grace, even as he passes righteous judgment upon sin. And so if you have found your place through Genesis chapter 3, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. Beginning in verse 16, the Word of the Lord says, He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust." The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken, He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. How often do we think about the consequences of sin? Now I understand from person to person we may vary in the amount of time that we think about the consequences of sin. We certainly think about the consequences of sin when someone wrongs us and we are immediately impacted by the consequences of sin. But we also think about that when we sin against someone else and we must own up to our actions. There are real consequences to the sins that we commit against others. Uh, But I think that we don't often think about the consequences of sin. Furthermore, how often do we think about the consequences of the fall? Not just our sin personally, but the, the guilt, the transgression of Adam and Eve in the garden Their fall into sin. It's easy for us to isolate the sin that we experience from the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, yet the consequences of sin, either committed by us or against us, are very real consequences of the fall, and yet often we fail to think about the reality of Adam's fall and its consequences in our life. Perhaps we do that whenever we experience sickness or great bodily illness and we're reminded of the effects of the fall on our bodies. We certainly think about that in times of death. Maybe pastors remind us of uh, the scriptures that death is a consequence of the fall. But if we're honest, we probably don't think about the consequences of Adam and Eve's fall into sin nearly enough. Nor do we reckon with the consequences of the fall in our own lives. Now perhaps we've begun to do that as a church as we've been walking through Genesis. We've been confronted now for several weeks with the reality of Adam and Eve's transgression and its impact on our lives. But now as we continue to hear God's pronouncement of judgment upon those involved in the fall, we must notice that those consequences are not merely for Adam and Eve, but those consequences are passed down generation to generation upon all the offspring of Adam and Eve. And while man and woman are not cursed as the serpent was cursed, we find in these verses that God's pronouncement of judgment upon Adam and Eve contains severe consequences that they and their offspring will endure all the days of their life. And so, as we look to Genesis three sixteen through twenty four, we see that it is by divine decree that the consequences of the fall are everywhere for us to see. We've seen some of those already as we've looked through Genesis 3. We've seen the shame that come upon Adam and Eve, though they were naked and unashamed in Genesis 2. After their sin, there's shame and guilt that is brought upon them. We've seen alienation from God and alienation from one another. We've seen conflict between man and woman and hostility between the serpent and between her offspring In our verses today, we'll see that even the bearing of children and the pain of giving birth is a consequence of the fall. The conflict that we might experience in our own marriages is a conflict of the fall. The burdensome, difficult labor that we endure, all a product of the fall. The thorns and thistles and the unproductive ground is a product of the fall and death itself is a result of Adam and Eve's fall Into sin. And so these verses help us to make sense of the struggle in life that we face, from our relationships to our work to bearing children, all of the struggles of life that we face as we experience the effects of sin and the consequences of the fall, we come to understand that it is designed by God to be a burden to us, to show us of our need of Him. And so, even as God pronounces His judgment and terrible consequences of the fall upon humanity, His words are interwoven with grace. As He speaks a judgment and speaks uh, consequences upon Adam and Eve in the fall, even interwoven and intermingled with those judgments is a sign of God's grace as He redeems guilty sinners back to Himself. And so as we consider these verses, there are a few things that we want to consider this morning. The first of which is God's grace in His judgment. God's grace in His judgment. Because God is now coming and pronouncing judgment upon Adam and Eve because of their sin in the fall. And He has passed judgment upon each of the parties that are involved. Beginning with the serpent, as we saw last week, the serpent is cursed by God to crawl on his belly and eat dust All the days of his life, this signifies a permanent hostility between him and the offspring of the woman. And it signifies God's prophetic pronouncement of Satan's sentence of humiliation, of frustration, and of ultimate defeat. And so in this setting of hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, God promises salvation and victory over Satan even last week in the curse of Satan, we see that God's words are intermingled with grace. And so as God now turns to the man and to the woman, his words again, though a pronouncement of judgment, will be marked by grace. God begins with the judgment of woman. the woman. Look with me again at verse 16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And so the consequences of the woman's sin, God says, will be directly related to her two primary roles in life, of bearing children and of her role as a wife to her husband. And these are the areas, by the way, that ought to have been the greatest fulfillment and the greatest joy in a woman's life. And now, after the fall, they will be marked instead by sorrow and pain. And so the consequence of sin first falls upon the woman in childbearing, that all the days of her life every aspect of childbearing will be marked by pain and sorrow beginning with a a discomfort of a monthly cycle and then continuing in the difficulties of a long pregnancy carrying a child for nine months that grows increasingly difficult month after month as the child grows within her womb And then, of course, it extends to the actual pains of delivering a child. Certainly without the advancements of modern science and medicine, this is extremely painful. In fact, even with the advancements of modern science, this is extremely painful. And throughout human history, up until very recently, this has been an incredibly life-threatening event in a woman's life as she gives birth to a child. And it continues, not even through those labor pains, but even long after the child is born as she endures exhaustion and fatigue that accompanies the the caring for of a child. It is through these painful efforts that a woman experiences the joy of bearing children. Though it is a joy to bear children, women must go through this difficulty because God has pronounced this to be the consequence of sin. Now women may ask, why is this so difficult, ladies, that it's not any incompetence in yourself? No, this is a result of Eve's sin and all women after her must fulfill the calling of Genesis one twenty-eight to be fruitful and multiply through much painful effort, God says here in Genesis 3.16. But this word of consequence is not without God's grace Because by God's grace, Adam and Eve, there's the promise here that they will still bear children. The command that's given back in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply, God is still going to grant them grace to carry it out. They're going to be fruitful and multiply. Our image bearers are going to be born into the world. And more importantly, the promise of Genesis 3.15 that he will crush, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and he will bruise his heel, will come to fruition because of God's grace Even in pronouncing judgment upon the woman, in the pain of every childbirth, there was to be a reminder of the hope that lay in God's promises, says one author. Even still, the joy of childbearing will not be known without much painful effort. It's true, isn't it, that there's nothing that quite captures the essence of living in a fallen world quite like childbirth. Uh, the, the, the joy and the anticipation and the excitement of finding out the gender and then going to the hospital and the baby being born. And there's so much joy and rejoicing. And yet, such a joyous moment is marked by so much pain and suffering uh, all through carrying the child and then giving birth. That's the essence of living in a fallen world, that even our greatest joys will be marked by difficulty. This is the judgment that God pronounces first upon the woman as mother. But then there's a second consequence that affects her as wife. It says that your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, this word desire, it, this particular Hebrew word for desire, it only shows up a few times in the scriptures. And here, it's, the same word is used that's also used in Genesis 4. And so in Genesis 4, it helps us to capture the meaning of what's meant by the woman's desire for her husband. In Genesis 4, we'll find in a few weeks that Cain uh, has uh, committed a great transgression against uh, Abel. He's murdered his brother and he's transgressed the law of God in this way. And God comes and speaks to him and says that sin's desire is for you but you must rule over it. And so what God is saying to Cain there is that sin desires to dominate you. Sin desires to master you. Sin desires to rule over you, but you must rule over it. This is a desire to control. It's a dominating mastery. And so the consequence of sin upon marriage is a sinful desire placed in a woman to dominate and control her husband. She will continually rebel against her God-given role, though Adam was made first and he was made head of the garden. And she was taken from his side to be equal with him, to be loved and cared for by him. Even still, Eve will desire now, on the other side of the fall, to dominate her husband. And furthermore, he will rule over her, tending towards domineering and ruling. In other words, marriage will be marked by mutual sinful tendencies towards one another. Now we must be careful to distinguish what is being pronounced as a curse upon the woman, being pronounced as judgment upon the woman, and what God's good design was. We can't see in this a rejection of man's headship and a woman's submission to her husband. In the beginning, God created man and woman, male and female, and He gave man the right as as head of the garden, as head of his wife, to be to have authority over her, and woman as the joyful ability to lovingly submit and to be a helper suitable to her husband. And so they're equal in dignity and equal in worth, but not in identity or role or in function. So we want to distinguish that from God's design, excuse me, distinguish God's design from the consequence of the fall. It's only after the fall that there's a perversion of this relationship between man and woman. It becomes woman's nature to usurp her husband's authority and headship, and apart from Christ, the average woman finds herself prone to sinfully rejecting headship and dominating her husband. And on the other hand, it becomes the man's nature to exploit the woman. To, to be given over to domineering authoritarianism. And apart from Christ, the average man will be prone to simply rule over, dominate, and subjugate his wife. Sin corrupts the willing submission of the wife. And sin corrupts the loving headship of the husband. And the loving submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband is replaced by conflict and efforts to dominate. This is the effect of the fall upon the institution of marriage. But even in these words, we see it's interwoven and laced with God's grace. Though this is not God's design, marriage will continue in perpetuity. Man and woman will remain together. They will enjoy the benefits and the fruit of this one flesh union. Though it will be marked by conflict, they will enjoy God's grace through this relationship in their lives. And furthermore, God will teach us through the Redeemer, through Christ Jesus, what it means to redeem the institution of marriage and for women to once again enter into joyful submission to her husband and for men to give themselves to sacrificial headship. Even God's pronouncement of judgment is flooded with words of grace. And so we find here the curse upon the woman, the judgment upon the woman. And one author says, What the woman once was to do as a blessing, to be a marriage partner and have children, has become tainted by the curse. In those moments of life's greatest blessing, marriage and children, the woman would sense most clearly the painful consequences of her rebellion from God. But God's grace in both of these areas is that He is redeeming them and He is bringing joy out of them. But even through the dissatisfaction and discontentment that we find in even those relationships, God is driving woman to find her identity and find her ultimate hope in Him. However much fulfillment a woman might find in being a wife, or however much fulfillment a woman might find in being a mother, there is greater contentment and there is greater satisfaction in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ to draw near to Him. That's the point of these consequences is to drive the woman to Him. God in His grace brings pain to these areas to point us to Himself that we might find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in Him. Well, there's judgment pronounced upon the woman, but there is also judgment pronounced upon the man. And similarly, we'll see that it is a pronouncement of judgment upon his specific calling and design. Look with me at verse 17. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree from which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. And so what the Lord is beginning to show Adam here is because he reached out and ate and partook of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that he was not supposed to partake of, he is now going to eat all the days of his life by means of painful labor. Though there was much fruit that he could partake of in the Garden of Eden, and it is is said there uh, that he may freely eat of all the trees of the garden. Here now upon the curse of man, he will eat by means of toilsome labor and the ground will be cursed because of him. That's the first consequence is the curse of the ground. And we saw back in Genesis one twenty eight again, there to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Adam is to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And so here, because of the fall, the consequence of sin upon the earth is that that which Adam was to have domineer, domination over and uh, bring under his rule will now suffer and it will uh, not be subjected to him in the way that it once was. There will be a curse upon the ground that it will not yield as it once did. There will be thorns and thistles to rob the soil of nutrition and cause difficulty to overcome for the earth to bring forth produce. The world that was created for man to have dominion over is now under a curse. We have brought thorns and thistles and alienated ourselves from our very environment. I remember when I was growing up as a child, my family would plant a garden year after year and every summer when we began to work the ground for uh, the first time in the year there was nothing but thorns and thistles and briars overtaking the entire field in which we would uh, turn into a garden proving uh, that the curse is real upon the earth there is great difficulty with working the ground but beyond that the entire creation Paul says is in turmoil it's in birth pains, uh, tornadoes hurricanes, droughts and floods all of these uh, natural disasters are caused by God's pronouncement of judgment upon the man. These are God's declaration that creation itself has been alienated from man. But there is not only a curse upon the ground, there is a consequence of sin upon work. And sin brings frustration to the working life of a man. It's said there that you will Eat bread. Verse nineteen says, "You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust." Now, again, we want to make distinction here between what God's design is and what's consequence of the fall. God designed man to work and to uh, to to serve and to work the garden. And to glorify God through that, work itself is not a curse. But what was a gift before the fall is now tarnished by sin. And work becomes painful and difficult. Work was once joyous, but now it's marked by painful labor and the sweat of a man's brow. Dear brothers, every time you mow your yard in the summer and you wipe the sweat from your brow, you must be reminded of the consequences of sin upon the earth. And all of our work, not even work in the summer, but all of our work, not just the work of the ground, all of our work is frustrated by toilsome labor and difficulty, not yielding the product that we would hope that it might. And when Adam eats, he will be reminded as he eats from the ground day after day, he will be reminded of his sin of eating of the fruit of the garden. Oh dear Christian, every time we go to the grocery store and every time we sit at the table and we have paid for the groceries that are before us, we must be reminded that work is toilsome now because of the curse upon Adam in the garden. And so God now curses the ground. He curses the work of man. But there is grace even in this. Because Adam will work the ground and it will bring forth produce. It will bring forth fruit for him. He will to some degree have dominion over the earth. Though it will be by painful labors and by the sweat of his brow, he will make efforts to subdue the earth. And though he will work, it will never fully satisfy. It will leave him feeling empty, driving him nearer to his creator to find his full satisfaction in him. Much like the place of the woman god in his grace brings pain to these areas of the life of a man to point himself to find his ultimate joy and satisfaction in god where men are tempted to idolize their work and find their identity uh, in their success and in their work, or whether they're tempted towards slackness and laziness. We must guard our hearts, brothers and sisters, against this temptation so that we find our contentment and our satisfaction in God alone. Well, there's one final consequence of sin upon Adam, and that is the consequence of death. It is said in verse 19, for you are dust and you will return to the dust. This is sin's ultimate consequence. Promised by God from the beginning in instituting the covenant of works, God says to man, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And we've spoken about this death many times, that it includes a spiritual death and separation and alienation from God. It includes a moral death and that his, his mentality and his morality is plunged into immorality. But it also includes a physical death, a natural death. And on the day that Adam partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he began to die. His, bega- his body began to decay. And though he lived 930 years, we read in Genesis 5 verse 5, So Adam's life lasted 930 years, then he died. Fully realizing the consequences of sin, living out his life in toilsome labor and in conflict with his wife, and then he goes to the grave, enduring the final consequence of the fall. But before that moment, we read that Adam professes a wonderful word of faith in verse 20. Look with me there. It says, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So we might ask the question, how does Adam respond to the pronouncement of judgment? How does Adam receive the pronouncement of judgment upon himself? Certainly, he understands that there will be toilsome labor, and certainly understands that his wife will bear children through much effort, and that their marriage will be marked by conflict. And yet, Adam perceives the words of God, even in judgment, as gracious and full of mercy because he pronounces a name upon his wife. He calls her Eve, it says, because she will be the mother of all living. That name, Eve, means life. And Adam names his wife, Life. Names her Eve because he believes the promises of God. He has heard the judgment of God and yet he still understands that she will bear children, though through much difficulty she will bear children and he will have offspring. And she will bear one particular offspring that will bring them victory over the serpent. And though sin has spoiled their marriage and they're now naked and ashamed that they were once one flesh and they have now moved to blame shifting and pointing fingers at one another. But now by God's grace, Adam understands that he has hope that by God's grace they can be reconciled. Adam believes, embraces, and confesses the promises of God, and he trusts God's word completely. Though Adam fell and plunged the entire human race into sin, here he models saving faith for all of his posterity. As he hears the word of God, he believes the promises of God. Though he once doubted God's word, as Satan comes into the garden, tempting him to doubt the truthfulness and the goodness of God's word, here Adam receives and believes the promises of God and by faith receives them for himself. One author says, Adam's declaration was an overwhelming shout of hope. The name Eve celebrates the survival of the human race and victory over death. And upon Adam's pronouncement of his wife's name, Eve, mother of all living, God comes to them and makes coverings for them. Verse 21 says, "The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them." And so we understand from Genesis that the consequence of the fall is death. And Adam and Eve understood that though they doubted God's promises and now as they come face to face with the reality of the consequences of their sin that to their amazement the punishment of their sin does not immediately fall on them but upon innocent animals. And though we're desensitized to death, and, and we're, we're uh, this doesn't strike us as significant for Adam and Eve, they experience the horror of death for the very first time as God slays an animal and skins it and makes coverings for themselves. And they realize for the first time, oh, this is what death means. As that lifeless animal lays there before them and they're having skins made for themselves, they realize the tremendous effects of sin upon the world in which they live and yet God in his mercy recognizes that their sin requires a covering and he grants it to them by grace by slaying this animal and this work of God by taking the life of this animal and making coverings for their nakedness foreshadows a greater work to come in God's ultimate sovereign provision for sin. Now we certainly don't have here in Genesis 3 a fully fleshed out explanation of the atonement and in every aspect of what that will mean for us as Christians. But in the garden, Adam and Eve certainly would have grasped some basic principles about the nature of sacrifice and the nature of the covering needed for their sin. They understood that the wages of sin was death. They understood that atonement for sin could only come by the shedding of blood. And they understood that forgiveness was a mere act of grace to undeserving sinners. And so we see as God passes judgment upon Adam and Eve, it is wonderfully interwoven with grace as God provides a covering for them. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never considered the consequences of sin. You've never reckoned with the reality of the fall in your own life. Maybe you've never considered the conflict in your relationships or the pain in giving birth and raising children. You've never reckoned with the idea that work is toilsome and difficult. You've never reckoned with the earth bearing thorns and thistles. And you've never thought about the idea of death being a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. But the good news for you as you sit this morning and and hear the Word of God, it is to be known to you that God no longer requires an animal sacrifice because a once-for-all-time sacrifice has been offered for sinners. That they might not be clothed in the skins of animals, but they might be clothed in white robes of righteousness, of God's grace and of Christ's righteousness. And all that is required of a sinner to receive the forgiveness of God, to be justified before Him, is to believe God's promises. To believe that he promised to Adam and Eve uh, many years ago that there would be one seed of the serpent, excuse me, there would be one seed of the woman who would bring victory to mankind over the seed of the serpent. Believe God's promise and believe it to be true and receive God's gracious provision of covering, not of the skins of animals, but receive God's gracious provision of covering secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. These skins, these animal skins that cover Adam and Eve's physical nakedness represent the covering that will be purchased by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Not to cover our physical nakedness, but to cover our nakedness before God Almighty. Because every man, woman, boy and girl will stand before the Lord God on the last day in judgment. Just as sure as Adam and Eve stood before the Lord God in the garden, so each of us will stand before the Lord God on the last day. And some will stand naked, their entire lives open before God, and He will pronounce judgment upon them. But those words will not be mingled with grace. You will receive the full wrath of God and punishment in an eternity of hell. But for those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and receive His grace and receive His righteousness as a covering for themselves, they will not stand before God naked, nor will they stand before God guilty. But they will stand before God just and righteous on the last day, covered by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would believe upon Him and trust in God's promises, you will be saved from the wrath and the judgment to come. Oh, but dear Christian, these words speak to us as well. May we ponder anew the consequences of sin and thank God for redeeming us in Christ Jesus. Though He owed nothing to you, and though He owed no covering to you, though He owed no space for repentance and owed you no mercy, God in His love redeemed you and saved you and reconciled you back to Himself covering your sin. In a few moments, we're going to go to the baptismal waters, and that's the very thing that we're celebrating this morning. It is said there in Romans chapter 6 that should we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, God forbid. We've been redeemed from that, and our sins have been covered. Absolutely not, Paul says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or he says in Romans 6, verse 3, Are you unaware... That all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Therefore, we were buried with Him in baptism into death. And in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. As Jennifer is baptized in a few moments, as she's buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life, dear Christian, that is what we ought to be reflecting on. Baptism is just as much a means of grace to the person being immersed in water as it is to the entire congregation as we reflect on God's work in our life and His mercy to us as sinners. Therefore, Paul says in Galatians 3.27, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ and so dear Christian we remember and reflect on God's redeeming work in our lives and out of that redeeming work we pursue God's design for life in Christ In our marriages, we pursue God's design, joyfully submitting women to our husbands and joyfully and sacrificially loving our wives' husbands. In our work, we joyfully do it as unto the Lord, doing everything to the glory of God the Father. And in grace, we hope in anticipation of the promises of God to be fulfilled at the return of Christ and not place our hope in the things of the world. Well, we see here in Genesis 3, even in passing judgment, God reveals His grace. And now, as we come to the closing words of Genesis 3 in the fall, we also see God's grace in exiling them from the garden. And so we see, secondly, God's grace in exile. We've seen, first, God's grace in judgment, but we see now God's grace in judgment there's true effects of sin. Look with me at verse 22. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. You see, sin has impacted man in such a way that he can no longer dwell in the garden and he ought not to reach out and take of the tree of life and live forever. He has rebelled against God in striving to become morally autonomous, knowing good and evil. He has forfeited his right to the tree of life. He now knows evil and its effects. He has not actually become a god. He has not taken on the attributes of God. But he is, uh, nor has he shaken off God's sovereignty and rule. But in this, he has transgressed the law of God in such a way that he is uh, unfit for eternal life. Should he have taken of the tree of life in his fallen condition, he would live perpetually in his sin-fallen condition. He's become ineligible to eat of the tree of life that sacramentally represents eternal life with God. Because he has broken the covenant of works, Adam can no longer earn merit eternal life with God. Therefore, he cannot eat of the tree of life. Because of this, he is exiled from the garden. He is sent away. He is alienated from God. Not only because Adam has been alienated from God, but God has been alienated from Adam by his sinfulness. And there are cherubim that are established there to guard the way to God. Now, this might, be, this might strike us as odd here as we read this for the very first time, but if we think through the rest of Scriptures as the, the rest of the Bible reflects on these words in Genesis 3, we see cherubim pop up all over the Scriptures. We see them in Revelation. We see them in Isaiah. We see them in Ezekiel. And they are associated with the very presence of God in the throne room of God. These are the angels as it, uh, that guard God's presence presence that guard the very throne room of God. And so here we have this establishment of cherubim at the entrance to the garden that they might guard the very presence of God. Adam has been exiled and cast out from God's joyful presence and these angels now guard the way. But we see these angels especially show up in the imagery of the tabernacle. If you remember in the book of Exodus, as God institutes the tabernacle, there's the Ark of the Covenant, and upon the Ark of the Covenant, upon the lid that rests upon it, the mercy seat, there was to be two golden cherubim, one on each side, that are symbolic of guarding and protecting the presence of God there. And upon the curtain that covered the tabernacle and later upon the curtain that would cover the most holy place in the temple. There were uh, cherubim that were embroidered there in that curtain and symbolic of guarding the very presence of God. Well, the author of Hebrews picks up on this language in Hebrews 9 as he reflects on the day of atonement and the, uh, the privilege of the high priest to enter into the holy of holy places just once a year to make sacrifice and atonement for the people of God. And he reflects there and says in Hebrews 9 verse 8, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was was still standing this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshippers conscience in other words the tabernacle and the temple and the cherubim that are on the tabernacle and the temple they are mere representations they're a type for this present evil age until the greater tabernacle and the greater sacrifice would come and so he continues in verse 11 But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Therefore, He is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so, dear brothers and sisters, where Adam rebelled and broke the covenant of works, alienating all of mankind from God and separating us perpetually, and God institutes the placement of the cherubim there at the door of the Garden of Eden, symbolizing that Adam and Eve are cut off from the presence of God. And there's a veil over the temple symbolizing that no one may come before the presence of God, though He's dwelling there in that tabernacle with man, they may not enter into His presence but the author of hebrews tells us that there is one man the man christ jesus who is the mediator between god and humanity tore the veil of the temple by offering the sacrifice of his own blood and now there are cherubim no longer guarding the presence of god but through christ jesus we may enter in to the presence of god we were alienated from him in adam but we are reconciled to god in christ And so God prevents Adam from living forever in his fallen condition and He drives him from the presence of God that he might not enter the garden by his own works and efforts. Adam is driven away and the garden is guarded so that Adam might not Try to figure out a way that maybe I can get around that. Maybe I can sneak into the garden. Maybe I can go into the presence of God by my own works, by the own efforts of my hands. There is nothing that Adam can do to return to the presence of God on his own. There are cherubim guarding the very presence of God with a flaming sword to kill the one who would enter the very presence of God. Adam had only to hope that God would in grace redeem him. And such is what God does through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the end of the Bible, as we read the first three chapters of Genesis now, if we were to go to read the last few chapters of the book of Revelation, we read about this tree of life again. And it said there in Revelation 22 that the tree of life was on each side of the river bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse the throne of God, and of the Lamb will be in the city, and the servants will worship Him." Oh, what John the Apostle is teaching us in the book of Revelation is that the promise of eternal life that was the reward of keeping the covenant of works that was lost because of Adam's transgression is renewed for us in Christ Jesus who kept the covenant of grace on our behalf that we might have eternal life with Him. Though sin separates us from life and sin separates us from the presence of God, in Christ we have access into the very presence of God. Oh dear sinner. If you sense yourself alienated from God, if you sense yourself distanced from God, if you do not know God in the way that we have talked about this morning, it is not by the works of your hands that you will enter into the presence of God. It is not that on the last day God will weigh your good deeds against your bad. It's not that He's going to consider your life and think maybe you're just barely worthy to sneak into the garden and, and get around the cherubim somehow. No, God will punish you in everlasting judgment for trying to enter His presence by any other way. Oh, but if you would come to Him by Christ, if you would plead the blood that was the once-for-all sacrifice shed by the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary and then taken into the tabernacle not made with hands and offered as that once-for-all time sacrifice before the Lord God Almighty, He will accept you not on the merits of your works, but He will accept you on the merits of Christ Jesus. Turn to Him and live and be reconciled to your God. But dear Christian, we are reminded in this as well that in Christ Jesus there is nothing separating us from God, and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, and there is nothing that can separate us from the very throne room of God. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says, approach His throne with boldness to find grace to help in time of need. We can go to Him and we can plead the blood of Christ as our mediator to help us as we endure temptation, as we live through the struggles of this life. There is grace from the One who has been tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. There is grace to be found in the throne room of God because Christ has secured access for us. And likewise, dear Christian, we can look with eager anticipation to the tree of life and the eternal life that that represents for us in the eternal presence of God. As we pass in death into eternity, we will be uh, reunited in, or we uh, anticipate a reunion with our body on the last day that we might dwell in God's presence as Christ has been resurrected as the first fruits of the resurrection. So we will be resurrected with Him. We will reach out and partake of the tree of life that Adam was unworthy to partake of. And we will reach out and partake, not because we're worthy, but because Christ has made us worthy by His righteousness. Dear Christian, that is our hope of redemption in the life to come. And so as we conclude this third chapter of the book of Genesis, we are reminded of God's judgment upon sin and of the grave consequences of sin. And yet we are also reminded in the midst of this pronouncement of judgment that His words are interwoven and mingled with grace. And that grace is ministered to us through the Lord Jesus, who is that one seed of the woman who brings victory over Satan and over sin and over death. That grace is ministered to us by the Lord Jesus, who is the one who gave His life uh, to provide a covering for our sin and shame. And that grace is ministered to us through the Lord Jesus who tore the veil of the temple and secures access for us to the presence of God. And it is ministered to us by the Lord Jesus who secures the right for us to partake of the tree of life and live in eternity with Him. Oh, through God's pronouncement of judgment, how marvelous we see His grace. Let's go to Him in prayer. Lord God, we come before you this morning in awe of who you are, in awe of your mercy to us as sinners, in awe of the fact that even in judging our sin and pronouncing consequences that we deal with every single day, you have shown us grace in Christ Jesus. And so Lord, we rejoice in that, we thank you for that, and we pray that you would help us to live daily in light of that as we endure the struggles of this life. We pray, oh God, that you would help us to find grace at your throne. Father, we pray for the one who does not know Christ, that they would come to know Christ as their Savior, that they may be reconciled back to You, that they may be restored, that the consequences of the fall could be begun to be undone through sanctification in their life, through their knowledge of Christ Jesus. Lord, would Your Spirit save sinners in Jesus' name. Amen.